0: Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers, as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar. A thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them.
1: This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca.
0: Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light brought to you by the workforce of diversity, equity, and inclusion of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. In this episode, we have a wonderful discussion with Dr. Sharon Ben-Or. Dr. Ben-Or is an associate professor and associate program director at the University of Kansas. She is the first woman president of the Eastern Cardiothoracic Surgical Society. We talk about her life growing up in Baltimore, the importance to her of her Jewish faith, and how it reflects her view and her ability to care for diverse patients. We discuss how her uncle encouraged her to go into medical school by his journey entering medical school in his 40s. We discuss how a clerical error led her to cardiothoracic surgery. And we also talk about her own personal experiences being diagnosed with cancer. We hope you enjoy this special episode. Thank you. Today, we have an episode uh, that I'm excited to do. Uh, it is with Dr. Sharon Ben-Or. Dr. Ben-Or is an associate professor and associate program director at the University of Kansas. She is also president of the Eastern Cardiothoracic Surgical Society, serving as the organization's first woman president. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sharon ben Hey, Sharon, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing, David?
0: Great, great. Welcome to the to the podcast. I I look forward to our conversation today and and I'm uh, glad to see you again.
1: Likewise, I had a really good time chatting with you at the Eastern this year.
0: Yes, it was a wonderful uh, um, uh, meeting, uh, took place in Florida. And we're taping this podcast um, during the COVID-19 pandemic towards uh, what I hope to be the tail end of the pandemic. And that was um, really one of the first medical meetings of the year that transitioned from virtual to in-person. What what was the thought process behind that and and how did you pull it off?
1: The whole entire executive council talked about what would be the best thing in terms of safety for the participants and exhibitors. And we really wanted to have an in-person meeting While maintaining the safety of everyone. So, we wanted to make sure that most of the participants or all the participants were vaccinated, but also that these would be people who would check on their symptoms. And there's something to be said about that human interaction that you just can't get via Zoom. I think there's something to be said about, you know, let's say seeing you at the meeting and saying, hey, David, let's go get a cup of coffee, that is really hard to do in this kind of Zoom era. And also, I found that. With these Zoom meetings, especially like the STS or the double ATS, people aren't going to be as engaged because they'll try to um, fit it into their workday, and so they're not as—I don't know if dedicated is the right word—but they just don't. They aren't able to do it all at once.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I think just like everything with the COVID nineteen pandemic, with 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 crisis, there comes opportunity, and there are things that we learn. Um, during this pandemic, both in patient care and in our, in our own interprofessional inter- interactions. And, you know, there's some uh, advantages of uh, video conferencing and these conferences in Zoom, but there's also advantages, as you point out, of just being there and having that sort of water cooler conversation, so to speak.
1: I, I had an opportunity to meet some great general surgery residents and medical students, and I mean, just taking them out for a drink by the beach, which we would not have been able to have done via Zoom. And um, I was having a lunch with um, part of the executive council and we saw three residents having lunch and we picked up their tab without them knowing just because we thought this would be something fun for them to have. And so it's those kinds of things, especially just chatting with people who are the future of our society who, and just letting them know, Hey, you know, we're, you know, the surgeons are real people too. We will, (laughs) we, you know, get up and put our shoes on one, you know, foot at a time, or I guess our pants one leg at a time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or shorts, uh, given the meeting was in Miami. Yes. And and, and be careful offering uh, antidotes of you paying for bills because now all the ears of all all of our podcast (laughs) listeners have perked up and um, (laughs) um, people are making strategies to meet you at the meetings during lunchtime. You know, you you talk about um, uh, us understanding surgeons from a different perspective, you know, putting on one shoe at a time. Uh, You're the first woman uh, president of the Eastern uh, Cardiothoracic Surgical Society. Um, How old is the society and what does that mean to you to be the first woman president?
1: Um, I think the society is over 60 years old. I think it is just behind the ATS, if memory serves me correct. Um, being the first uh, woman president is kind of surreal because on the one hand, I'm honored to be able to forge this path or break this glass ceiling. But on the other hand, I, I want to say it's about time. I, I shouldn't be the first female president. I, shouldn't have, I should not have been the first executive council member. And so what my goal for this year is to increase the number of underrepresented minorities within the society and the executive council. So that way we can get more voices and more backgrounds.
0: You know, uh, uh, increase the number of underrepresented minorities um, is a goal um, amongst a lot of institutions today, including Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And uh, one reason is to sort of increase that cognitive diversity, sort of that perspective that people from different backgrounds to different unique points of view Um, bring to the table. Uh, Your background is as unique as anyone's. Um, It it first perked my uh, interest with the pronunciation of your name, Sharon, and it provides sort of a a fascinating interest in your origin story with your parents. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit bit about your parents and and their backgrounds and, and growing up?
1: So um, I'm the first American in my family. My mother is Mexican and my father is Israeli, um, which makes me a bit feisty. Um, my mother studied to be a concert pianist and uh, my father served in the army and came to the United States and owned electronic stores and then slowly made his way um, down from New York to Philadelphia and then to Baltimore where he owned electronics stores until I was a teenager. And then he started a construction company. So um, he did not graduate from college and, but he definitely stressed the importance of education. And so it was definitely um, different growing up in, I, I don't know anything different than growing up with an immigrant family, but there are certainly different um, traditions, um, pronunciation of things. I didn't know that Dulles Airport was pronounced Dulles until I was 20, because I just pronounced it Dulles, because that's how my parents pronounced it. And it was only until a travel agent corrected me (laughs) that I knew that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, that, that was before like, you know, uh, Uber. So luckily you didn't get dropped off in the, in the, in the wrong place. Right. But it it, it must've been fascinating when, when we think of sort of adjacent cultures and we think of sort of the the rich Mexican culture and the risk and the rich Israeli culture um, you know, how, how, did you meld those different backgrounds? And what sort of overlap developed growing up?
1: Um, In terms of the backgrounds, it was mainly, the big thing was family and loyalty. And that's how my parents are. It's, you know, I'm a ride or die kind of person. Once I'm your friend, I'm kind of stuck with you (laughs) forever and I'll be with you through thick and thin. A lot of perseverance. I think that that's, um, especially from my uh, father's side, just being Israeli, he grew up in Israel when it was still Palestine. So learning how to forge through that and how to continue uh, fighting for what you believe in. And so it's um, one thing that that I always try to do is I stick true to my principles, no matter what, no matter how quote unquote detrimental it might be to me it's a simple right or wrong thing. So I'm very, um, black and white at times. And so it's hard for me to see gray, but I, I try to.
0: And then, um, uh, so you grew up in Baltimore mm-hmm. and, um, Baltimore, you know, it seems like this season we have a lot of Baltimore folks with backgrounds of Baltimore on the, on the podcast. You know, it's a, it's a an interesting city. It's a complex city. It's a, a big urban city. Um, a, a lot of, uh, adjacency of, of, of socioeconomic um, backgrounds. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience.
1: In terms of uh, the socioeconomic backgrounds, just looking at different parts of Baltimore, there are certainly different areas that are rich in certain cultures. So um, close to Baltimore, there's uh, Pikesville where a lot of the Jewish community lives. And that's where I went to school was at a Jewish, at a Jewish day school. So there are a lot of Israelis. Um, there are parts of Baltimore that are considered a bit more rural. Um, and, you know, let's say like Essex or um, Dundalk where, you know, and I've had, I had friends who lived there. And so, and sometimes, you know, that you have that quote unquote, thick Baltimore accent, best place to get crabs are in those areas. Um, there's where I went to school for high school. It was interesting because uh, I admit it was not as diverse as it could have been. But there are certainly people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, which I thought was really, which was actually very helpful for me, because I didn't grow going to Jewish state school, where it was purely white Jews to going to a more diverse high school, I thought was very beneficial. I mean, the first time it was Ash Wednesday, I saw people with the ashes on their foreheads. I didn't know what that was. And I wanted no. to like, lick my thumb and like rub it off their forehead until someone explained it to me. And it was just ignorance on my part. And so yeah. being able to talk to people about those things and understand them or, you know, talking to people about Kwanzaa which I've had minimal exposure to.
0: So it, it's, it's um, fascinating that you went from perhaps a, a somewhat homogenous uh, yes. educational experience to a uh, heterogeneic ed- experience. But you sort of embraced that. You asked questions. You you understood what folks were wearing on their foreheads um, uh, during li- religions that may not have been familiar to you.
1: Right.
0: So uh, it, after Baltimore, you went on to Penn, mm-hmm. uh, University of Pennsylvania, um, uh, slightly heading up the coast there. Yes.
1: Um,
0: and uh, you talk about sort of, uh, your journey to medical school and um, how a ski trip uh, sent you to medical school. How how, how does, how how does, unless you're skiing downhill and it keeps on going into the lecture hall, how how does, how does that happen?
1: So um, when I was 10 or 11, my family and I went on a family ski trip um, in Western Maryland. And it was the first time my brother, my mom, my dad and I all went skiing and it was with my uncle, my cousins. And um, we went to get skis and they didn't have skis in my size. So everyone took their first day of lessons and I was stuck in the cabin with my uncle. And part of his midlife crisis, he decided that he wanted to go to medical school, but he first had to go to college. So he was in college and he was studying for his MCATs. And so he decided the best way to study was to teach me what he was learning. And so I spent the whole day helping him study or learning about enzymes and ATP and whatnot. And it was really fascinating. And then as he got into medical school, he kind of took me under his wing and showed me what he was learning. And when I finally got into medical school, he got me this beautiful hardcover netters and he inscribed in it to Dr. Ben Orr, love Dr. Ben Orr.
0: Is he still practicing now?
1: He is retired. Oh, okay. Did, he did his residency in OBGYN
0: An OB/GYN, So, uh, sort of a surgical specialty. Yes. And, uh, at Penn, uh, you decided to go into surgery. Yes. Why surgery?
1: Um, it was in medical school. I just remember walking down the street, um, by Pennsylvania hospital and I was so excited to go in there and, do a case. And I was like, it's 5 a.m. going in. This is awesome. And then I thought about when I was on my internal medicine rotation and I thought to myself, Oh, it's 8 a.m. I have to go in to do internal medicine. And so it just kind of clicked for me that that was what I was really enthusiastic about, that that was where my passion was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um, it's it's amazing how sort of the, the energy that's required to do surgery kind of jumpstarts us for the day and, and makes us want to wake up and, 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 and do it. But it, it sounds like, um, your journey into thoracic surgery, um, may have been a clerical error.
1: Yeah, it, it was. Um, I wanted to do, so during my surgical subspecialty journey, I initially wanted to do ophthalmology and my first day of ophthalmology, when I saw them making incision in the eye, that was the only time in medical school I almost got sick, and so that ended my ophthalmology career. And then I thought about ENT, but I didn't like the E in the N, so that didn't work out. And so I thought, well, surgical oncology, because I thought the liver and the pancreas are so fascinating. So I signed up for rotation to do surgical oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center. And my first day there, um, I realized that someone had mixed up the paperwork and I ended up being on the thoracic oncology rotation and that's how it started.
0: So uh, a little uh, paper mix up and, and, and you're on thoracic oncology. So, but you know, what about thoracic oncology made you love it?
1: It was the variety of cases, Um, the patient population, no two things are the same. You could spend a whole day doing bronchoscopies or you could be doing a complex airway surgery or esophageal surgery. Um, One of my attendings during general surgery said, whatever subspecialty you wanna think about going into, think about the most boring procedure. And if you can see yourself doing that every day for the rest of your life, then that's what you should go into. And so as much as I love doing airway stuff and robotics, I'm perfectly content doing e-buses and EGDs as well.
0: Wow. Wow. You know, I always, uh, also like to say, you know um, if you like spit, then maybe general thoracic surgery might be the right, (laughs) the the right thing for you. Um, So the, the, from Fox chase, you decided to go into, into cardiothoracic surgery and, you know, it was really sort of thoracic oncology that kind of speared you into CT. Was there any concerns about having to study cardiac cardiovascular surgery and pediatric uh, heart surgery as part of sort of the whole certification continuum uh, of the next phase in your education?
1: I think there's definitely concern about cardiovascular surgery just because I had some experience, but not a lot of it. And pediatrics, I saw as Something new to learn, but I think as I moved up in my training in fellowship, I realized how unique congenital surgery is because it's just a completely different physiology, and I completely understand why there it has its own separate boards. And the thing is that I loved my congenital rotation, but emotionally it was very hard for me to um, see these sick children, and when they passed away, it was it was something that really resonated with me. And I just, I felt horrible for the families and it just, it was something that I knew I could not do. I just did not have the emotional wherewithal to be able to take care of children like that. And so those people who are able to are just absolutely phenomenal human beings.
0: You know, is the, the emotional toll on um, physicians and uh, especially cardiothoracic surgeons that might be sort of overlooked in some degree, you know, whether that's congenital heart surgery and, and uh, dealing with a sick child to really thoracic oncology and, and, and dealing with the aspects of cancer. In, in your everyday work, you deal with patients with lung cancer, um, soft jaw cancer or, or other uh, secondary tumors. Uh, how do you sort of uh, navigate the, the weight of that treatment. You know, obviously there's highs where you cure people uh, of their cancer. Um, but it, it, it can't be easy.
1: No, it isn't easy. And, uh, I can tell you, David, that there's, I mean, I kind of see a split in my career. Um, before 2017, I was a bit more numb to it for lack of better term. I kind of treated each patient as a disease process, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, There are some patients who certainly resonated with me and who I will remember for the rest of my life. And some I'm ashamed that I just don't recall. And then in 2017, when I was diagnosed with cancer, it completely changed my approach to patients and being able to tell them that I get it, or sometimes I don't even tell them that I've had it, but I can certainly, speak to them the way I wanted to be spoken to when I was a patient and basically say, Hey, I don't know what you're going through, but I can certainly empathize with these feelings of fear, anger. And my goal is just to help you navigate through this because when you receive that diagnosis of cancer, you just feel lost and you don't know where to go.
0: It's, you know, it's not easy being diagnosed with cancer. Um, And especially when you have the, the, the experience of being in sort of control of a clinical situation, right? Uh, where you almost we sort of dictate the clinical situation. Um, what What was that that response when you were f- first made that diagnosis, especially given the perspective that you have as a thoracic surgical oncologist, really?
1: Are you talking about when I when I received my diagnosis? Correct?
0: Or? Correct. Yeah.
1: It was um, it was one of the hardest things I had to go through because I thought back on all of my patients who had metastatic cancer. And I looked at, I tried to have, take control over it. Okay, this is when I'm gonna have my surgery. These are gonna be my surgeons, but it was, I tried to control everything that I could, but I knew I had very little control over everything. And that was the hardest part because At the time I realized that everything I'd planned for at that point in my life was gone. And when it, when I finally came out on the other side and I was trying to figure out how to rebuild my life, I met with my therapist and she said, the problem is that you're trying to rebuild the life that you had. She said, that's not going to exist anymore. You have to rebuild a new life with the pieces that you have. And it, took a long time and I'm still in the process of rebuilding it because so many things have changed.
0: Yep. How, how has it changed?
1: Um, I would say my perspective on life is a little bit different. Um, I'm, I'm less trusting and that's just because of what happened to me in terms of, I was betrayed by my own body, um, with patients. I'm, I try to be a bit more um, empathetic and a bit more honest with them where I'll just tell them, hey, I get it, this sucks. Um, My appearance is different. Um, My hair grew in, and I know it's superficial, but my hair grew in straight. It's a different color. It's a bit darker. Um, There are still some after effects in terms of uh, chemo brain where sometimes I'll just, I feel like I'm translating English into English and I can describe an entire procedure to you, but I will forget that it's called a bronchoplasty. And so it's just, it's a word finding thing. Um, uh, my relationship with family members have changed also. And with friends, because I learned that I can't hold people to the same expectations that I hold my, to myself. So there are some people that I expected when I was diagnosed with cancer to be there for me right away. And they weren't, and it put a strain on a lot of those relationships. And there are some people who unexpectedly were there for me that I didn't think that they would be there for me and it means a lot to me from that standpoint.
0: you know I, I, I again, we've only known each other for a short period of time but in that that short period of time I've uh, been sort of in, in, uh, amazed and inspired by your strength and your uh, ability to to be so uh, outspoken. Um, uh, about uh, these experiences and and your ability to to take these experiences and really benefit others in regards to how we can learn to deal with these sort of traumas. You know, you talked about how um, in your career you moved to Kansas and the University of Kansas and and were rec- recruited by. Um, a a mentor in your life. Um, How did you end up in Kansas and who recruited you?
1: Well, um, when I was in South Carolina, I realized it was time for me to move on. Um, There are certain things that just, you know, were not, I was not fitting well into their mold and they weren't fitting well into what I wanted. And so I was actually looking at a position at MUSC and I called up uh, my former attending Nirmal Vera Machineni who is the division chief at um, University of Kansas. And he has his finger on the pulse of everything. He kind of knows what's going on everywhere. And so I asked him what he thought about MUSC. And he said, well, um, you know, I do have to admit to you that I have a bias because I wanted you to come here six years ago and I want you to come here now. And he aggressively recruited me. And it was amazing in that it was the first time I felt like I was really wanted by an institution where I was interviewing them; they weren't interviewing me, and it was kind of. I took to heart that I don't need to run away from a job. I run, want to run toward a job, and so I said, "Well, these are the things that I would like to do at KU, and if you can help me achieve those things, great. And if you can't, you know, no, you know, no hard feelings." And um, everyone here has been welcoming in terms of saying, "Yeah, we can make that happen."
0: So the, the environment at KU and with Dr. Uh, Vera Machanini, how did that sort of environment help you through the process of your medical journey in regards to your own personal medical journey and the, the, your diagnosis?
1: Um, one thing that I was always scared of is what would happen if this comes back. And that was something for my diagnosis that I told Normal look, I need, I need to have assurances that, you know, if this does come back, how are you guys gonna treat me? I don't wanna be treated like a pariah. I wanna make sure that I'm still able to contribute to the division and to the department, but that there may be certain restrictions. And fortunately we haven't had to get to that point because everything's looked okay in terms of clean bill of health. But Normal said, no, we've, we have special funds that we call the break your hip fund so that um, all of the um, surgeons in the department kind of put this money in the slush fund. So That way, if someone does require medical leave, we're able to compensate for that. And so I think that's something important that a lot of departments need to do because we're all gonna have to deal with medical issues no matter how big or how small it is. And um, something that we talked about at the meeting, David, was was, uh, reproductive issues for women and having to take time off. And so, um, that was great from normal and the department standpoint. And then the thing from being a cardiothoracic surgeon was I, I told them how important teaching is, and that's one of the most important things and fundamentals that I feel about thoracic surgery. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to be made the associate program director and, um, Emmanuel Dayon, who's the program director has been. Allowing me to help create the curriculum to you know meet with the fellows to try to figure out how to teach them in a way that would really um, really benefit them because I think gone are the days of powerpoints for teaching people.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know it's fascinating. It, it, this is another again we're taping this at the tail end of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and if there's one thing that that taught us um, during the pandemic is that uh, when you develop a rainy day fund. At some point, it might rain, right? right? <laughs> and and then you might need that rainy day fund. And so it's, it's interesting that they had sort of a, a a break the hip fund. Obviously, that probably was developed when the the, the age median for your, your <laughs> division or department was uh, in a transitional period. But um, it, it shows the importance of of when you're looking at a job or a position or when you're looking at your career, it's not just cut and sew, right? right? Uh, it is looking at things, an environment that has the infrastructure that could support what you want to do.
1: And I completely agree with you. And that includes um, you know, the Break Your Hip Fund, um, parental leave. Um, I think also trying to figure out if someone has, you know, short-term illness, can people cover for each other? So I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and, okay. um, it was, yeah, I diagnosed myself in my office and I left, I had to leave in the middle of my clinic actually. And, um, so my partner, Ali Khan Naji he, I called him up and he said, okay, I got your clinic. And so he came in and saw the rest of my patients for clinic. And then when I went home, I called up all of my patients and Normal and Alicon covered as many cases as they could while I was away, and so it was great to kind of be able to have these moving parts. So that way, if there was something that was emergent, someone else could cover for me, and vice versa.
0: And that's the kind of environment that I I think in in the private sector, you know, the non healthcare sector or any other uh, business sector outside of healthcare is what's to be expected. Um, and it's fascinating that, you know, we have that same environment where I work, where it's not mutually exclusive from high level cardiothoracic surgery to hop, to have that sort of, um, you know, I got your back workplace.
1: Definitely. It's refreshing.
0: Yeah. So, you know, other things that, that, that have come up in sort of conversations between you and me um and uh offline and you you mentioned um the the meeting that you helped organize at the the eastern um are are things that we as a society perhaps don't quite understand and that is the sort of the the reproductive challenges uh of women uh in medicine and um uh, in cardiothoracic surgery or the surgical specialties, uh, that, that there are challenges that exist, but there are things that we can do to help our faculty and to help our trainees to mitigate some of those challenges.
1: I think the, you know, the most important thing is just being open about it and accepting, um, if a woman chairs, uh, cares to share what she's doing, that's great. And if they don't, that's all right as well. Um, It's also looking at when ultrasounds are being done for um, in vitro fertilization. Sometimes the the residents or the surgeon is going to have to leave sometime during the day. And so it's trying to accommodate her in terms of, okay, well, you've got an ultrasound at 8am. Well, let's have your OR start a little bit later or it's the resident sure just come in a little bit later that's okay as well and so it's realizing that this is something that's important because fertility goes down with age as we all know and more women are postponing reproduction until after they finish their residency and so It's they're gonna as they continue doing that. It's gonna be harder for them to get pregnant naturally, and so they're gonna have to have reproductive assistance. The other thing is, in terms of monetary, I mean, it's a lot of money to do that to pay for the medications, to pay for the doctor's appointments for the um, for the transfer, and there's no there's no hundred percent guarantee that it's gonna work. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, I did a couple rounds of IVF, and I had. I think two embryos to show for it. And in the end, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was actually preparing for a frozen embryo transfer. And that's when I was diagnosed. And so that was put on hold. So it's um, there are a lot of moving parts and trying to realize that it's our job to accept and to accommodate people. And simple things like in South Carolina with our residents was making sure that there was a place where they could pump that was close to the operating room. So that way they could do it between cases instead of having to go halfway across the hospital.
0: You know, uh, one thing the Society of Thoracic Surgeons implemented at his annual meeting was a a nursing mother's room. Uh, So uh, we can have um, uh, uh, presenters and participants in the meeting uh, who have a young child and who have to, to nurse uh, the other thing that we uh, uh, did was uh, eliminate the rule that you can't have baby baby carriages on the exhibit floor, um, so uh, you can actually you know go and look at the exhibits and, and still push your your baby. Who knows? Maybe we could slot people into the call schedule um, at a younger age. So if if I'm a department chair and you know actually I have a a little bit of juice. To construct my my department in a way that is um, uh, conducive to faculty faculty with these thoughts and issues, what what are some of the low hanging fruit structurally uh, that could be uh, provided to our junior junior faculty and mid career faculty?
1: One of them is just being honest about a, um, a parental leave that actually makes sense for cardiothoracic surgeons. So um, for women in our field, six weeks off is not enough. We need eight weeks and making sure that we're on light, at least eight weeks, making sure that we're on light duty. So that way that will, um, minimize any risk of having either going to early labor or God forbid a late-term miscarriage. I mean, those are things that we need to make sure of, and also figuring out a way for, um, the faculty members to say, Hey, you know, I know you're going to be on parental leave. I know you're worried about your career. What can we do to help you with that? Do you want to do something non-clinical while you're away? Or if not, how do you want to get that started? So formulating a plan with that person because, and making sure the call schedule works out for your trainees as well. Um, We had a general surgery resident in South Carolina who was pregnant and uh, I think she was due to deliver in November. And everyone thought it would be a great idea to put her on nights. And I said, absolutely not. So well, why not? I go, well, suppose she has an issue with the pregnancy and she has a complication and she can't take nights. Well, now someone else is gonna to have to take that those night shifts and that's gonna to lead to resentment. And so it's saying, well, where which rotation would she be most expendable? That if she were gone, it really wouldn't cause anything to suffer in terms of how everything goes daily.
0: You know, uh, in my my role as a program director, um, uh, when I was a program director, um, my concern was always, if I make exceptions, thinking one way, would that sort of diminish the educational experience uh, of that woman who has pregnancy realities? And then um, is that overthinking it? And um, is the reality is that we have to sort of reimagine uh, what we do for the reality of, of the situation in regards to uh, reproductive health uh, in residency or early career.
1: I think we definitely need to reimagine and change things. Um, using things like simulation would be great for them. Um, also now with, like we talked about with Zoom, those are ways to have didactics with them where they don't necessarily need to be present, but that could be recorded as well. And also having blunt discussions with um, these trainees and saying, hey, you know, do you feel like you're where you need to be? There's some trainees who go through the entire three years of training, but are still not prepared to go out into practice. And there's some who do two years who are perfectly fine going out. So it, it, it has to also depend on your judgment of how you feel that trainee is because we have to put out good cardiothoracic surgeons, but we can't have them be afraid to have children, to have a family or to live their lives. That's not fair to them at all.
0: And um, the, the, the reality is, is that all specialties should be open to, to women. And, and it's not just women who are looking at reproductive strategies, but also men too. Mm-hmm. that we are looking at parental leave and sort of modern relationships that necessitate um, parental leave and parental support uh, that we need to reimagine moving
1: forward. I agree with you. Um, and people tend to talk about maternity leave, but they tend to fail to look at parental leave in general. And I spoke to one person about it who kind of scoffed at the idea of um of um, paternity leave, I guess. And I said, if you say that you're for mothers taking time off but not fathers, and that's actually, um, you can be accused of discrimination. And And that's how Ruth Bader Ginsburg got her start, was looking at those kinds of quote unquote exceptions. And so it's, you're right, this is a time for bonding for the parents with their child. It's also being able to assist. And there's no other time in your life that you'll get this time with your child, and you just you know you deserve it. One of my colleagues here just had a baby, and he said, "I'm taking some time off because I want to spend time with my new baby and my wife and my kids." And I said, "Congratulations, you deserve it."
0: You know, uh, I mean, these are really all sort of fascinating issues that we don't think about uh, as often as we should. Um, But, you know, you are able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, You're an an expert in uh, minimally invasive surgery Um, and um, you've had leadership positions in such organizations as the International Society for minimally invasive cardiothoracic surgery or uh, ISMICS. And you have really cogent thoughts and ideas about where our specialty is going. Where are we going in regards to Technology and evolution of our specialty. We, t- we talked about sort of the the inclusive human resources aspects of our specialty, but w- where are we going clinically? Do you think
1: um, clinically for thoracic oncology? I could see us getting more into um, tumor biology because I think now with looking at um, all the tumor markers, gone are the days of you know doing an EBUS and cancer or no cancer. Now you got to look at EGFR, ALK, KRAS, et cetera. And so um, I think that we're going to have tumor biologies being part of the staging because that's going to determine whether or not we're going to have to give adjuvant treatment, which I could totally see patients with stage one disease getting adjuvant chemotherapy as a preventative thing, kind of like for breast cancer, where patients with stage one uh, breast cancer who are moderate to high risk will get adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, one thing that I've found fascinating um, that I saw a talk on was artificial intelligence. And um, it was a talk on AI for uh, moderate aortic insufficiency. And what it was is creating an algorithm to see which one of these patients with moderate AI would actually progress to severe AI and require surgery. And so is that something that we could use for general thoracic surgery, let's say for the ground glass opacity where you don't want to cut them all out, but which ones these are going to be more likely to develop into invasive lung cancer?
0: You know, it's, it's interesting that um, uh, we look at all these FDA approvals of uh, targeted therapy and immunotherapy uh, in the early stage setting, you know, whether it's um, uh, osamarinib for, you um, uh, uh, EGFR positive uh, adjuvant therapy in, in the EGFR positive lung cancer, uh, or whether it's uh, uh, nivolumab um, immunotherapy in patients with resected esophageal cancer who have undergone chemoradiation, it's almost as if the the we are at a, a inflection point in general thoracic surgery where we are our role is changing. Where we have to now understand where the if who, who, what early stage patients would benefit from systemic therapy and direct them to medical oncology as, as uh, appropriate. Um, uh, do you see us evolving in that sort of way in, in embracing that new responsibility?-
1: I, I definitely see us um, embracing it, and I think that in institutions where, we have that relationship in tumor boards and we discuss these patients anyhow and say, hey, well, what do you think? I think that it will evolve into that. And it's kind of going to become full circle where in some ways the thoracic surgeons may become gatekeepers for the medical oncologists. And now I'm not going to say that we're going to just say, all right, we're not going to send them to you because we want to keep the business. But I think we're going to start making more and more referrals for early stage lung cancer. And it's going to have to be in a way for us to really understand, um, I've spoken to some people that in some ways, especially for the community surgeons um, who are doing both cardiac and thoracic, we're going to have to make it easy for them to understand. And so it's the, you know, um, let's say with uh, the liquid lung biopsy, you know, it'll have all the mutations. And I said, well, maybe you should just say, needs to see an oncologist. <laughs> and, and, and that would make it easier for, you know, for us.
0: Uh, you must care for a, a pretty sizable chunk of rural patients yes. uh, in your practice. Um, uh, are, are, do you receive referrals directly from primary care, and, and how does that sort of rural uh, practice uh, um, uh, ma- manifest itself?
1: Um, some of it is a result of our lung cancer screening, where we will um, where we'll catch these patients and have them come see us, which has been fortunate um, and some are from primary care providers as well. And so it's a mixed bag. Um, the one thing that has been interesting that I didn't that I didn't really appreciate was that uh, for our lung cancer screening we have them in two locations uh, because uh, of where the bus schedule is. Hmm. So for some people who just can't drive, well, okay, they have to come to the main campus because the bus comes over here so it's easier for them as opposed to the other campus.
0: Yeah, th- those little sort of uh, uh, fine details is what we, um, I mean, we as a healthcare, broader healthcare community, oftentimes miss when it comes to population health or clinical trials or or other things. The bus schedule, uh, transportation issues, uh, distance for uh, uh, trans- uh transportation. But it's it's uh, I always find it f- fascinating and in many ways and and invigorating that we could take our patients with geographic disparities, our our rural patients. And then as you talk about things like um, AI and targeted therapy and immunotherapy, uh, provide that sort of innovative, high level, cutting edge care to that population that may not see that sort of innovation in other aspects of their daily lives.
1: I definitely agree with you on that. And it's um, from that standpoint, it would be um, kind of having a discussion with their medical oncologists as well. So that way we can say these are our, this is what we would recommend in terms of treatment, but you can get it closer to home because people don't want to drive three hours to get chemotherapy or anything like that. And I think now with um, how we have uh, telehealth visits, that makes it a lot easier for our patients as well. So that way we can chat with them. Um, They don't have to drive, you know, goodness, how many hours or someone who, hey, I saw your CT scan. This is what I think we should do next. How do you feel about that? And so it's definitely a convenience and also trying to figure out, all right, if they're coming from two hours away, I don't want them to be a first start because then they have to leave at 3 a.m. So we'll have them be a second case for the day.
0: Great, great. So uh, we're going to end on a a celebratory note. Uh, Sharon, you have a a lot of uh, a laundry list of awards and uh, accolades, Uh, but uh, perhaps your, your greatest award is that a, a a patient named their dog after you.
1: Yes. Um, (laughs) He was a patient. He is a patient of mine. um, Well, he was, and he's still with us who had esophageal cancer and, um, had a very complicated course and had a stricture. And so I was having to dilate him almost every week. And, uh, one day before his dilatation, he asked his, he told his wife, well, I want to have a puppy. And she put her hand on her hip and said, well, if Dr. Benor prescribes you a puppy, then I'll get you one. And so before he went to sleep, he said, Hey doc, will you prescribe me a puppy? And I said, what breed? He said, doesn't matter. And so I wrote him a prescription and um, gave it to his, we had it laminated and we gave it to his wife and he got a puppy that he named Benworth Snickerdoodle Stowe, who is just the cutest um, labr- Labradoodle ever.
0: Uh, people don't realize that having a, a, a dog named after you is like uh, a great honor. Our dog is named after a famous general. Uh, so uh, uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, Dr. Sharon Benor, it's been my pleasure uh, uh, speaking with you today during a, a deep dive on your uh, amazing backstory um, as, as you lead our heartland um, uh, community members uh, into expert thoracic surgical care. Um, Dr. Sharon Benor, uh, president of the Eastern Cardiothoracic Surgical Society, thank you for joining us on Same Surgeon, Different Light.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, The Face of CT Surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.